Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, to chapter 4. This morning we'll study verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. As we come to this passage, of course, we're breaking into Paul's long discourse on the doctrine of adoption. And you know, if you're regular in our church, that this is not the regular way that we take to the study of scriptures. We are interrupting, we are topically coming to the text this morning instead of sequential, verse-by-verse exposition. I had described earlier why that is. But nonetheless, it puts the weight upon me at the moment to tell you of the context. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and this is one that has had, well, some division. And that division has sprung in part from bad lifestyles because of bad doctrine in the leadership of the church. You see, Peter and others who came to them from Jerusalem were then ignoring and not associating rightly with the Gentiles. And so the Apostle Paul is touching on it. This is bad doctrine. It's bad doctrine regarding justification. It's as if those men, those leaders, had misunderstood and thought that a man is made right with God because of at least the possibility of the work of circumcision in his flesh. And so in this chapter we come again, let me remind you, into Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of adoption. That those who are not the children of God are being received as children of God, true heirs of all his heavenly blessings. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you that we might hear the voice of your love to us in the scriptures. Lord, we pray that this morning as we study these few verses that you will rule over us. Lord, that you would dispel our rebellion, Lord, our resistance to your eternal truth. Lord, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would draw our minds and our hearts to consider heavenly things and the eternal nature of your Son. Lord, that we would consider his real humanity. Oh Lord, His compassion, His suffering. Oh Lord, His faithfulness and obedience. 
O Lord, in his work under the law. O Lord, help us to see the whole Christ. O Lord, the one who came from heavenly glory and riches was made poor for the sake of our salvation that we might be called your children. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. We believe these things, the testimony of the incarnate God, the enfleshed divinity, the fullness of God dwelling bodily in the midst of the people of God, the Creator upon the creation. We believe these things. But Christian, this morning I ask you the question, Have you ever considered them and pursued them and asked the question, why are these things necessary? Of what value are they to me? Why must He be both entirely God and entirely man in one person, two natures, not mixed or harassed, but in their fullness, continually. Why is that so precious and so near and so essential to the Christian faith? Well, this morning in these two verses, I want to pursue that. And I want to ask you to be with me as we consider Christ. As we consider Him and His eternal divinity. And in His perpetual and perfected glorified humanity. The Lord of glory. Who we hope and believe is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The three points I want us to consider from the passage this morning is firstly. A son sent by God. A son sent by God. Secondly. A son born of a woman. A son born of a woman. And then thirdly, a son born under the law. Sent by God, born of a woman, born under the law. One of the things that I enjoy so much about this time of year is the rich theology that we get to sing. 
This morning, we read corporately the Apostles' Creed. You just heard me read the second section, or at least a large portion, of the Nicene Creed. We've sung really wonderful hymns that reflect the teaching of the Scriptures. And when we come to verse 4, what we find is the Apostle Paul, in clear language, almost giving us what could be considered a biblical creed. These are succinct, summarized statements about truth regarding Jesus. I do want to say that the three points, a son sent by God, born of a woman, and born under the law, any of those things, any of those phrases that make up this very short collection of verses, we could spend not just one sermon on, not just one hour, If we were writing books, not just 10 pages or 50 pages, we could spend years, decades, we could, in fact, I think, say an entire eternity and never exhaust it. And so this is me prefacing the reality that we will do what we can in the space of time that we have to touch upon these transcendent truths. These are great and wonderful things that we have recorded in the Scriptures. Verse 4 begins with a wonderful phrase that I want to draw your attention to, but when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth His Son. This idea of the fullness of time, Paul is writing to the church here in Galatia, and he is pointing them to the heart and the mind, indeed the purposes of the transcendent God of heaven. He's saying that when the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth His Son. This is a spectacular thing. It's something that we ought to at least give our minds to. To slowly consider. To press ourselves to and to see the glory of God within. Because what this phrase tells us is that Jesus Christ came... Because God wanted it to be so. Because God wanted it to be so. And you might say, well, of course, we understand that. In general, this church believes in the sovereignty of God. Of course, Pastor, we believe in the idea, the doctrine, if you will, of predestination, of the, of the decrees of God. It's a simple thing. We get it. God is the director of all history. So why are you making such a big deal out of these few words? Well, it's to say this, Christian. Our salvation begins in the heart of God. Not in the actions, the tantrums, the chaos, the catastrophe, or the needs of a fallen creation or creature. That's a distinction, isn't it? That it begins in the wisdom and the recesses of the mind and the heart and the purposes of God, not with us. You and I live in a world that at least we may have convinced ourselves is created to cater to us. A place where when we have needs, we go and fulfill those needs. We may think of the circumstance, if I can use sort of an illustration, of when we're sick, right? A runny nose, fever, a cough, maybe something much more serious. 
What do we do? Well, we do like any rational person does, especially people who have access to modern medicine. We go and we seek some help, no matter at what length or in what style of medicine you prefer, whether it's natural medicine or medicine according to modern and conventional practice. It may be a cup of hot tea. You go to it because you need a thing for yourself, right? Your problem dictates your action. It dictates what happens. For me, it says, Nick, you go to a doctor. You go get some help from somebody that knows more about you than you know about yourself in this circumstance. And so things happen according to my need. It's all around me. Like I'm the center of my universe. But if you knew me very well, if you've ever heard my wife complain about me, as a man, I scarcely go to the doctor even when I really need to, and it has to get really bad before I do anything regarding my own health. Because I want to be the one that dictates what happens with me. Things begin and they end with me. Things change because I want them to change. But the truth of the sending of Christ is that I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. That our redemption, our salvation, and the sending of God's Holy Son depends upon the perfect love of God alone. Notice I said the perfect love of God alone. Why is that even a thing to point out? And it's this reason. Because you and I and our sins are not lovely. We're not. As some of the parents in the room think, you know, if my child needs a thing, of course I give it to them. Look how cute they are. It's their natural defense system. They're just too cute to hurt. Right? So I give them what they need, right? The wickedness of our sins are dark. They're not adorable to God. The fits, the tantrums. He sees them more clearly than we do. He sees the dark inclinations of our hearts when we shake our fists at Him and when we hate Him. It is so good that our salvation began only upon the plan and the heart and the mind and the perfect love of God. Not on the loveliness or adorable nature of the creature when the fullness of time had come. This was always coming. It was always a thing according to the mind of God. It was designed by Him, so He sent Jesus, His Son. You should hear echoes of maybe one of the most familiar passages of Scripture here. For God so loved the world that... He sent His only Son. Why? Because of His love that He had according to His own heart for His creatures. The Son was sent by God because God decided to send Him. That's the first thing I want you to notice in the text. Because of the fulfillment of the fullness of time. His plan had come about to where it was the right moment with the right people in the right place in history for Him to initiate His plan to redeem for Himself a people. But as you continue on, it's not just about the the distant, the transcendent plan of God, but it says that He sent forth His Son. He sent forth His Son. And I want to direct you to another thing about the text. It's a presumption that's within it. 
And maybe it's something you've never even thought about. This passage of Scripture presumes the eternal existence of God the Son. Do you see this? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Jesus did not begin in the manger, nor did He begin even in the conception by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. His divinity extends eternally. You say, I don't understand that. You're not supposed to. Your head can't get around it. If you could figure that out, you'd be God and God alone. It's unsearchable, but it's a reality. He doesn't begin at even His own conception in human flesh. His divinity extends into eternity so that it may rightly be said that He is very God of very God. It may rightly be said that all things that were made were made through Him and anything that was made, none of it was made apart from Him. It presumes the eternal character of the Son so that whenever God wanted to send His Son, He was already there and ready to go. Why is this such an important thing to point out? Because Jesus is so much bigger and extensive than your mind and your heart can get around. And at times, you and I and this culture of the world will diminish Him into this blip, this thing that happened in history that just came onto the scene before which he was completely outside of. Before his birth, even in his birth, continuing through his life and continuing today, he is the eternal God, the eternally begotten Son who has always upheld the whole of creation by the word of his power that He Himself was instrumental in the creation thereof in its whole. Propositional theology. A thing assumed in the text. The eternal existence of the Son. But another thing I want you to realize and recognize in just this tiny phrase is who is sent? It's not just anybody. We're not reading that in the fullness of time God sent forth another prophet, even though Christ was the great prophet of the people of God. Another messenger, even though Jesus bore the message of the God of heaven. Not just a teacher, not just some revolutionary, not just a king. No, this is his son. And notice that He's not just a Son, but He's the Son. His Son. The only singular one that's mentioned here. God has one Son. And it's His Son that He sent into the world. And one thing we have to say is simply this. Sons look like their fathers, at least in part. They do. They bear up within themselves attributes of their fathers. They do. According to men... Fallen men, both good and bad things about us. Men, don't you see that in your sons? Good things that you have that you can pass on to them, but also bad things about your character, bad things about the struggles you have in life that are evident in them. 
The Father of Jesus Christ is God Himself and He is only good and good eternally. Within the Son, He maintained and retained the fullness of the divinity of God and all of His goodness. And why is this so important? Well, it is because of the work that the Son would do. The work of John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made Him known. It's because the Son who knows the Father has come to display His Father to us in word and thought and deed and affection. The telling of the Scriptures is that no one has been with Him except the Son. That in the giving and the sending of the eternal Son of God, God is displaying Himself in the flesh to His creatures. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. By His Son. Jesus came as the Son of God to reveal the character and the heart of God to us face to face and personally. To embrace His creatures as Creator. To express a transcendent heart to a finite being and to show forth to us a love that is unsearchable personally. Your mind can't get around that. You just can't pierce the heights of it. The light of this reality is too bright to stare into, it's blinding. It's a wonderful truth. The Son of God came down and dwelt among us. Praise be to God for this mercy. The second thing that I want us to see in the passage, a son born of a woman. And I think if you're like me, you've got a scene that's etched into your minds. Especially if you've been shopping anywhere in this country at all and have seen any Christmas decorations. You, you have this, this picture, right? There's a man. He's walking. He probably has on some sort of headdress of a sort. He may have a, a staff in his hand and in the other hand he's got the reins to a donkey, right? And there's a woman seated upon it. She's got a great big pregnant belly. And they're going somewhere. And we all know where they're going. This is the depiction of the nativity of Jesus Christ. This beautiful, I think, moving um, somewhat faithful depiction of what the Bible says regarding the birth of Jesus. But, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you have to ask the question, well, why is this so spectacular? Why is this different and a thing of note? Pregnancy is relatively normal, especially in this church. A lot of babies here, lots of little voices. Pregnancy's kind of normal. Why is this so unique. Why does Paul touch upon it here? 
because it is God's Son with a fullness of divinity dwelling in the fullness of humanity. The word that your English translation may translate as born, that's a fine translation of it, but it kind of has a bigger meaning. Ginomenon. This idea that the eternal Son of God became of a woman. Became human in her humanity. This is a word that talks about essential attributes. Right? The very core, the depth of a thing. Genomenon. To be, to become. It's existential, if I may use that kind of language. And that's what's being said by Paul. The eternal Son of God became human in the woman. There may well be echoes, I think there are, to Genesis 3.15, the first telling of the gospel, that the seed of the woman would crush under heel the seed of the serpent. You know that wonderful text of Scripture. You know, this word here doesn't say born of a virgin, even though that's true. There is an emphasis by Paul specifically on the taking on of humanity that Jesus had in His birth. The virginal birth, if you read the article that I sent yesterday, is hugely central to the Christian faith. But this is specifically, in my opinion, locking its eyes on the fullness of His humanity. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts this into very clear terms. If you want to look and read along with me, it's uh, on the back of your bulletin. If I can find my own. Chapter 8, Section 2, I believe it is. He took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, of her Substance. Do you hear what he's saying here? What the divines are describing? This idea that whenever the Son, the eternal Son of God, came into creation, he didn't just take on the the depiction of a human. He's not wearing a costume like a spirit just walking around in a suit. He took on all of the essential properties and common infirmities of our humanity, yet without sin. He didn't just become like us, He became us. You need to be absolutely clear about this. There was, and is, and will remain to forever be Humanity united with divinity. 
That's what happened in the womb of the virgin. That's why the pregnant belly of Mary is such a spectacular thing. It's not that she's pregnant, but that there is divinity united with humanity. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and manhood, inseparably joined together in one person. You say, I don't understand that. You're not intended to understand it. It really is beyond us. But it is also internally true. God dwelt bodily with the people of God. Well, this is a spectacular difference, isn't it? It is. Because at one point, God was with His people. The Spirit of God hovering in the temple over the Holy of Holies. Over the mercy seat, dwelling with them, right? That's what the testimony of the Scriptures say. But this is entirely different. When the Spirit of God was in the Holy of Holies, nobody could go there but the high priest. And even the high priest risked life and limb. There wasn't fellowship. Not face to face. It was a terrifying, dangerous thing. He wore bells on his garments so if he falls dead, they can pull the dead body out from behind the curtain. But now, in this, God dwelling in the midst of His people, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what happened in the enfleshment of Christ. You may ask the question, well, I, okay, I, I get it, but, but really... Like, how how has this come to me, Pastor? Like, why is this as important as you say it is? And maybe you should also ask the question, why are we so happy to celebrate His birth in this season? Why is it really good news? Well, I want to tell you that it is because in Christ, who took on our flesh, we have a commiserator. I entirely should have spoke to Sven about this term who's translating commiserator, one who shares our misery. One who shares our misery. He entered into our humanity to experience our sufferings, our trials and temptations as one of us. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This says to you that your God knows what you're going through and loves you enough to have endured it himself. That's what it's telling you. That's the high and mighty theology brought down to the dinner table of the child of God. Your God loved you, entered into your humanity, and suffered like you suffer. He cares. He has an ear bent to your prayers. He knows the sort of things that you're saying. He knows the depth of grief. He wept at the tomb of his friend. He knows the excruciating experience of your pain. He excruciated under the weight of pain himself. He knows what it's like to lose a child. He knows. He held the lifeless child in his arms 
at the side of grieving parents. He knows. He cares. And that is only one aspect of the wonderful mercy and the wonderful glory of the incarnation of Jesus. He knows. And He is a commiserator with us. There's another aspect to His humanity that we have to understand. And if I may quote a church father, Gregory Nazianzus, he says regarding incarnation in general, he says, the unassumed is the unhealed. The unassumed is the unhealed. What does that even touch upon? Well, I think we could express this over an hour, two hours, 10,000 pages. But to be, to be very brief about it, it means this. He entered into all of our sufferings so that He could put away the suffering for us. He came and bore up our flesh and the whole of who we are so that He could hang in our place. So that He could intercede, so that He could intervene, and so that He could repair the circumstances. So that not one ounce of all of the frailty and the torment of the soul of humanity would be left untouched by the grace and the mercy of God. That's at least a piece of it. At least a piece of it. And then the third thing I want us to see in the passage is a son born under the law. Because that's where Paul's going. That's what he's touching upon to the Galatians. This is a text about adoption and about the issue of the law and being right with God. He is the Son of God, sent in, born of a woman, of her substance. But he's born, submitted to the law of God, to the moral, to the civil, to the ceremonial. That all the things that God requires of His creatures, Christ was required to keep. That's what it's saying. He's born under the law with the responsibility to keep the law. And you say, well, okay, I get that. So are all of we. We're born under the law, aren't we? Every creature, every human creature is born under the law to keep the law. That's been a thing constant from creation to Keep the word of God to obey, to do what God commands, right? Well, it's so significant because of what problem you and I have with that situation. We are required to keep a law, but you and I have hearts that are fallen and minds that are fallen. We have a nature that is fallen and sinful. That even whenever we give it our very best effort and when we try to push out the dark parts of our hearts into the very recesses of our soul, that we still come up with something at least less than the requirements of God or something that is a righteousness that is self-serving. That's the problem. The problem is that we are required to keep the law, yet we are a fallen people that our minds, our hearts, the whole of who we are is touched with sin. But in Christ, the eternal Son of God, born of the woman, in all of our humanity, born under the law, 
comes in as one of us, yet not born in sin. Not born with a sin nature. Not born with a mind that desires, delights to rebel against the God of heaven. He comes in holy. He's like his father, maintaining every attribute that is necessary and essential to his eternal perfection. Jesus comes in under the law to fulfill the law. It's pretty simple. To maintain the moral law where we have been deficient in maintaining it. To maintain also the civil and the ceremonial attributes of the law of God that God intended for him and for us to keep. Jesus came to keep it. And you may say, I don't know, Pastor, this whole law gospel thing you're getting at, I, I don't know, we like to do away with the law. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I have come, this is Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Jesus was born and He came to be obedient to the law of God where we fail to be obedient. He came to fulfill the law and to keep all of its positive commands and to also never do anything that it forbids. That's the first aspect of it. But He also came to bear the penalty of the law against our breaking of it. He kept all of the law in its commission and then He took upon Himself all of the punishment that we deserve for breaking it. And that second aspect of it, you may ask the question, why? Why is it so important? And it's this. God might pour out His wrath against your sin and my sin and torment in hell, but the reality of it is is that my sin is great and the wrath of God burns against it, and if God's wrath burned unchecked against my sin, I couldn't bear it. That's why we have this idea, the truth of the eternal torment of hell. And what we're saying here is that Jesus, the perfect and the only righteous one, when He bore the penalty, He could bear it fully. He could endure the wrath fully. He was punished unto death in our place. He died our death for us fully. But death couldn't hold Him. And we ask the question, well, why? Well, Paul says the whole point. It's to redeem us. It's to redeem us. And you say, Amen, praise God. The purpose of Him coming and living under the law was to redeem us, to save us, to purchase us so that we don't have to pay what we rightly owe a punishment before the throne of heaven. That's what it means. He takes us, purchases us, so we don't get what we deserve, and He gets what we deserve. But let me say to you this. Yes, that's good news, but that's not the whole of the Gospel. It's not only that you're no longer an enemy of God, guilty, and to be punished by Him, but it's also that when you're purchased, you're adopted. That's what the end of this is. Yes, you're right with God. Yes, you're declared righteous. 
hand, you're seated at his table, not only a man at peace with God, but a child of God, loved, delighted in, spoken to, consoled, comforted, blessed, made safe when afraid. Adoption is what this thing points to. Being like a son or a daughter that sits on the lap of a father and just looks into the eyes and without words expresses the fullness, the depth, and the height that the love of a parent to a child and a child to a parent can express. With no history that would impinge upon it, but perfect unity and fellowship without an ounce of issue or anger or wrath, but only blessing and blessedness. That's what we're talking about. Adoption. He came, took on flesh, lived under to the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The good news is that it's not only that you're no longer an enemy of God, but you're a child of God if you've received Jesus by faith. That is good news. That's wonderful news. Because God is a good father. And he keeps his children. And he loves them and he blesses them. Would you have this Christ? Would you have this kind of relationship, this kind of intimacy? That can only be had through him? Would you have it? It's free. You can have it. By believing in Him. Putting your faith in Jesus. That He came. That He died for you. And that He is pleased that you would come unto His Father. A people to receive His blessings and His benefits. Would you have Him? I call you to faith in Christ this morning. Believe in Him and be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teaching. We thank you for the truth, O Lord, of the incarnation. The hope of the enfleshed Christ. Divinity dwelling bodily in the one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that you would take this exposition of your word, that you would press it to our minds, our hearts. O Lord, help us to consider things that are so far beyond us. Oh, Lord, that you would move us to have faith in Christ. That we would cling to him. Oh, Lord, that we would find safety in him and in him alone. And that we would find the love and the compassion that children enjoy from God the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.